You're listening to Choose FI Radio. The blueprint for financial independence lives here. If you're looking to unlock the secrets to financial independence and early retirement, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and join a community of like-minded people who are getting off the hamster wheel and taking control of their lives in the pursuit of financial independence. Choose FI, your home for financial independence online. guys super excited about this episode you know in the financial independence community we get really excited about knowing the rules while in general you're talking about the rules of life when you really go down the rabbit hole you start looking at financial rules and accountancy how the tax code works how it can work to your benefit and there's no one that is more dialed into that particular rabbit hole than an accountant what if you could find an accountant that is inside the financial independence community and is tailoring his writing his content specifically to our stated goals. What if you had a guy or gal, you know, this is 2019, but in this case, we're going to be speaking with Phi Tax Guy and Sean Mullaney is joining us on the show today. We featured several voicemails from him over the past several months. There's been seriously pent up demand from our community for us to have him on the show. We're excited to air this episode today and help me with this. I have my co-host Brad here with me today. How you doing, buddy? Hey, Jonathan, I'm doing quite well. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this for a while. Actually, it's really interesting that Sean and I grew up about 10 minutes apart on Long Island, New York. My wife, Laura, and Sean actually graduated from the same high school the same year. It was wild when Laura one day said, oh, Sean Mullaney's in the Choose a Five Facebook group. And it, it was just really serendipitous. And we got to know each other. And yeah, he's become a really integral part of the Choosefy community. And it's it's wonderful to have him here. Not to mention, he's one of the wittiest people I've ever seen. We share a mutual love of the sad sack Mets and Jets. And Laura and I crack up at all of Sean's uh, tweets and Facebook posts about them. So with that, Sean, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Brad. Great to be with you guys today. Looking forward to talking some tax and hopefully some New York Jets as well. <laughs> well we, I don't know. You guys started talking about how it's a sad sack. This is a term that I haven't heard. Of. Maybe it's a Long Islander thing along with the food store, um, <laughs> but it sounds kind of intimidating. We'll, we'll try to focus a little bit more on the tax side of things today. And let's start just by talking about when financial independence came on your radar as just even a concept. Was this something that you were steeped in in the early days? Or was it part of your accountant journey? Jonathan, you guys are actually sort of how FI came onto my radar, right? So over the years, I'd seen some Mr. Money Mustache posts and a few other posts, some JL Collins, and it never really stuck with me as, oh, there's this FI concept out there. Probably sometime in winter, spring of 2017, and it might have been through Laura's Facebook page for all I remember, I found your podcast. And one of the things I really liked about it is, I've been interested in personal finance for 15, 20 years. And what the FI concept does, it says, all right, we have all these tools. We have all these bricks, right? Roth IRAs, mega backdoor Roth, high savings rate, whatever you want to call it, you know, all these different tactics. FI comes in and says, well, here's how I take those tactics and build a financial house. And that was something that was very powerful for me in my FI journey. So Sean, I'm curious. I tell people that 
I'm obviously pursuing financial independence and I have this podcast and, and then they hear I'm an, I'm an accountant. They're like, oh, of course, it's easy for you. You're a CPA. I don't know about you, but from my personal experience, I didn't find necessarily many of my colleagues were great savers. I know I remember back in the day when we first started at one of the big public accounting firms, everybody was buying like BMWs. So it wasn't like steeped in fine knowledge. And I'm curious, what has been your personal experience? And did you find that accounting for you actually did help with your FI journey? And I guess maybe more generally your personal finance journey. If you think about CPAs, you have to think about who are our biggest customers. For most CPAs, their biggest customers are large corporations. Now, that's not universally true, but a lot of the career paths coming out of college go through some sort of corporate practice. And you don't need to know a lick about personal finance to serve a corporate client well. Their considerations, whether it be on the financial side or the tax side, have very little to do with personal finance. And I sort of had my personal finance journey start basically separate from my professional pursuits, right? I I read The Millionaire Next Door in college, and then blogs, Wall Street Journal, those sorts of things, just got very interested in personal finance. But that was, for the longest time in my life, very much tangential, very much separate from my professional journey as a tax practitioner, serving mostly but not exclusively corporate clients in the beginning. Now, Brad, I don't want to throw you under the bus here, but I think it's an important part of the contrast that I want to set up in that you have publicly documented on the show, this inflection point where your boss told you that you needed to come in at eight instead of eight, eight thirty, And that was the final straw that broke the camel's back. You go to Laura and you say, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and basically you said that, you know, you, you were uninspired, you were good at your job, but you were uninspired now, but I've also heard you say right next to that learning accountancy, learning this practice has been so valuable for you in other walks of life. And what I see with Sean and Sean, I'm bringing you in on this. So I know this is a long way of getting here is that you thrive by being able to meld the financial independence concepts, which we're going to dive into with this background accountancy. And it seems like you've kind of been able to bridge this gap between with, with what comes down to alignment. And I'm curious if you look back on, you know, your, your accountant journey, what choices did you make that really made that possible? When I came out of college, I thought I was going to move back to Long Island, work for a big four accounting firm, and make partner up there. That was going to be my lifestyle. And it turns out it's not that simple. So I worked for a year or so, and I identified an opportunity in our national office where, hey, you know what? There's some really cool jobs in this profession in Washington, D.C. I want to get one of those jobs. As a rookie accountant, that was not very easy to do. And so what I did, I stepped back and said, well, what are the people who have those jobs? What do they have in their background? And most of those folks had experience at the IRS national office. And the way to get to the IRS national office was to become an attorney. And the way to become an attorney was to go to law school. And so what I did was, you know, I kept my ears open, eventually applied to law schools, and actually used some financial independence concepts back then. I didn't realize they were quote unquote financial independence concepts, but I applied to state schools in Virginia. I established Virginia residency and you know, was able to get both in-state tuition and some scholarships and went to a great law school, George Mason University, got my law degree, passed the bar exam, took an offer with the IRS Office of Chief Counsel 
And what that did was it got me in that door of being a national tax practitioner. Early on, right, the salary for a rookie government attorney is not very high. But when you go to a state law school and you get some scholarships, your student loan debt is somewhat manageable. And so I did a little over three years with the IRS national office. And eventually I got a job in a big four national office because I had done my time in the IRS office of chief counsel. And that put me in a place where I was doing great work and making a very high income. Sean, I have a bunch of follow-ups, but I want to start with this. It sounds like planning, right? And reverse engineering. You had your ultimate goal and then you work back in a stepwise process. But it sounds like the very first one might be the most actionable, which is moving to Virginia. As I understand your story, you had planned to go back to New York and get your first job, which may or may not have happened. And somehow you established Virginia state residency because you knew you wanted to go to law school. That is the ultimate in long-term planning. Talk me through any kind of actionable tips that you would advise, what did you have to do and how far in advance did you have to live there to establish that in-state residency to get the dramatically lower tuition for law school? Yeah. So my first job was on Long Island with a big four accounting firm. What I did was I put out some feelers. I said, well, if I need to establish Virginia residency, I need to get a job down there first. So I put out some feelers and eventually got a job interview with another big four firm out in Tyson's Corner, Virginia, which is outside of Washington, D.C. And they said yes. And I remember when I was interviewing, one of the partners said, you know, this is a great place to come if you're thinking work for two years and then go for your MBA. At that point, I wasn't thinking about an MBA. I was thinking about law school, but that was a very valuable piece of information. So I accepted that job and worked a little over two years. And during that two-year time, I studied up for the LSAT, got my Virginia residency. I think you needed at that time one year, and please don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure it was. You needed to be a resident for one year, right? So you move, you, you get a Virginia license plate and driver's license and all that good stuff. And then in a year, you're now a Virginia resident. And when you apply to law schools in state, they give you, you know, they put you on the in-state track. And if you get accepted, you now have in-state tuition. I think back then it was something like $11,000 a year. And that was before my scholarship. So that was a pretty good deal. So scholarship, I'd love to hear about that. I mean, that's too enticing to not ask about. Oh, absolutely. So George Mason University had a very interesting scholarship program. The way they did it was it was 5,000 for the first year. So now we're at, say, 6,000 tuition for the, for the first year. And it was definitely a bit of a teaser rate, right? So the way they structured it was 5,000 for the first year, and then 3,000 for the second and third years each, if you stayed in the top 15% of the class. So the scholarship was not automatic. It didn't automatically renew, but it gave you even more incentive to study hard and do well on your tests and those kind of things. And fortunately, I was able to maintain a standing where I was in the top 15% each of the next two years. So my overall scholarship, I guess, was 11,000 total, 5,000 year one, three each in year two and year three, and the in-state tuition stayed relatively low. So that made the debt burden from law school relatively manageable. 
I would love to actually circle back and talk about becoming an accountant, getting a degree as an accountant. And I know there's different designations uh, like CPA versus just having a degree as an accountant, but I'm curious, like what are your thoughts on an individual who isn't sure what they want to do, just getting a degree in accountancy and like maybe expected pay scales before you really quote unquote make it? Yeah. So it very much varies. There's been several developments in the world. 25 years ago, there wasn't a whole lot of difference between the big firms and the smaller firms. And what's happened over basically the past, say, 25 years is that the pay, particularly at the more senior levels at the big firms, has continued to escalate at a very rapid pace, while pay at smaller firms is still very competitive and still very good at the upper ends, it's not quite as high as what you'd see at a big four. So if you're coming out of college, you're looking at, say, mid five figures, right? And and it, that's going to very much depend on your market. Bigger cities, generally speaking, are going to be higher than smaller cities. And then as you progress in your career, you get different promotions, right? So your first promotion might be to senior and then to manager and then to senior manager or director and then to partner or managing director. Each one of those is going to have a pretty substantial bump, right? So by the time you're, say, 10 years in and you're at a manager, senior manager level, you could be making well into six figures. Some of this is the long game, right? And then the other thing to be thinking about, too, is, well, maybe you go in, get your three years in with big four, and now you can go into corporate America at a relatively high pay scale, right? High fives low to mid sixes in terms of compensation, right? So there there are different models once you're in the big four, right? Do you try to progress through big four, make it to partner and have a high income that way? Do you go into industry and, you know, try to get a good salary that way? Or do you go out on your own? And there are things in the middle, there are smaller firms. That's one thing about being an accountant, eventually getting your CPA. And there's just so many different paths you can take, whether that's on your own, in a small firm, big firm, or in industry. Yeah. And, and you know, one thing that was kind of stood out to me and Brad, I'd actually love your thoughts on this. Like, even though currently you're not working as an accountant, I, I've, it's become very clear to me that you, the degree was valuable for you. And I'm just curious, like in, in a world where it seems like college students graduate and now we're suddenly considering ROI, And will there be a job waiting for me? Like if you look back on choosing accounting as a degree, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, Jonathan, certainly over the first couple hundred episodes of Chooseify, it's been documented my kind of love-hate relationship with my own path. I think a lot of that just comes down to personal preference. I did start out at one of the big firms and it just wasn't for me. The hours were punishing. It just, it wasn't what I wanted my life to look like, but man, to Sean's point, it provided options. And I think that's one of the beauties of just accounting in general. To me, accounting truly is the language of business. And I know without my background in accounting, I don't know that I'd be anywhere near as valuable on this podcast. Would I have ever even gotten here? I don't imagine that I would have. I think my entire life would be different. I, I've run multiple small businesses that I've, you know, owned through these websites that I have, et cetera. And like, I think my background in accounting has been invaluable. I mean, not to mention just physically doing the accounting and the, the tax returns, et cetera, but just having that fundamental base of understanding 
about how businesses should be run. I think I've gleaned that from my background in accounting. So again, kind of love hate. And, and we've joked about this many, many times, but it just gives you options and it gives you information. And like to Alan Donegan's point on episode 128, when he talked about it not being linear, I put in a ton of work learning lots about tax and general accounting. And like, it didn't really pay off for me in my short term. Like to Sean's point, he thought he was going to one of the big four. I kind of saw my life like that. And I very quickly realized, okay, this isn't the dream. So in that regard, like it wasn't linear, but I think it has ultimately helped me 10 or 15 years down the road to this point where everything has worked out better than I could have imagined. And a lot of it is due to that accounting background. Yeah, Brad, can I add something there? I think a career in accounting does two things for you. One, it makes you a very structured person. It just naturally makes you structured and detail-oriented. There's that old saying that you could take the man out of the military, but you can't take the military out of the man. There are definitely aspects of that in a career of accounting. And then the second thing is it makes you very planning-oriented. When you work in an accounting firm or an accounting department, you generally are thinking about, well, how do we optimize things? How do we make things better? How do we make the numbers work in the future? That mentality, I think, carries through in your small businesses and anything you're going to wind up doing in the future. Yeah. And Sean, a lot of people get bogged down when they hear CPA. They think, oh, you must be busy at April 15th. And that's the be all end all. You do individual tax returns. I just want to say, and, and I'm sure you could back this up, that it is just such a broad, broad field. I mean, there are many CPAs who probably don't even file their own tax returns or have never looked at a tax return. It's just a broad field where you could be anything from that person filing tax returns up to a CFO or a CEO of a major corporation because you had that background in accounting. So I think it really does provide a whole host of different career options. Absolutely. There's a whole lot of consulting that people with CPA licenses do, a lot of tech consulting. There's all sorts of things way beyond audited financial statements and or tax returns. Guys, I've really enjoyed this conversation and it's one I've wanted to have for a while because in my mind, there's so many kids that go to college and just don't know what they want to do and they just get a degree and some of them choose liberal arts, not because they're necessarily passionate about liberal arts, but just because they don't know what to get. You come to the end and suddenly you realize there's not a job waiting for you guaranteed. And so then you just go back to school and, and my, my kind of background thought, and I'm not even asking you to validate it. I'm just airing it here is that like, if you don't know what you want to do, and you're just going to college because you just have to go to college and you want to make sure that you have the best shot of just getting a job, any job post-graduation, it seems like accounting would be a valuable ROI. It's just, it, it just seems like it checks a lot of the boxes. Not that everybody needs to go into accounting, but it's worth having that in your zone of awareness. Sean, one of the things that's really cool about your story is over the past year or two, your path has allowed you to pull off effectively what um, we call around here and got it from slowly sipping coffee, a fully funded lifestyle change. And I'd love for you to help us reverse engineer this, how you pulled this off and what you're doing now. All right. So let me give you a little background, right? So I'd been with a big four accounting firm since 2011, had a really good experience there, but I'd had this itch to do personal financial planning, right? To work with individual clients, to work on the tax side, but also on the financial planning, insurance, all that good stuff. I'd been thinking about it. 
but you know, it's tough leaving a career that has advantages and has a very good paycheck. And so what I did was I saved up a whole lot of money, right? Saved up money so that I'd be in a position to make a decision, to make a career change, if that's ultimately what was best for me. And eventually I got to the point where I had to scratch the itch. I had to start my own firm and work with individual clients. And so that's what I did. In June 2018, I left my firm and I had money saved up to both sustain living expenses and to start a new business. And that's what I've done. I've started an accountancy firm out here in California. It's called Mulaney Financial and Tax. And I provide clients with financial planning services, tax consulting services, tax return preparation, all that good stuff. So I'm now you know, essentially my own business. And I was able to do that because of that model of save up a bunch of money, have that capital ready to fund your lifestyle and to uh, fund your business. And I want to stress that like, this is not, you know, it, it, it may be a little scary to execute on this, but it wasn't really like risky per se, because if it doesn't work out, if nobody uses your services, nobody hears about you, whatever, you could always go back. You can always go back. It's a turnstile. That's exactly right. That, you know, I heard Joel from Phi 180 once say that my worst case scenario is many people's every day. I think that's important, right? So what I'm doing too, in terms of the fully funded lifestyle change, it's not as though I went and became a you know artist, right? So I had a background in corporate taxation and then got some additional training while I was still in the job, uh, you know, on the financial planning side. And so I'm shifting from corporate taxation to personal financial planning, individual tax. That's not so radical, right? Um, not to say that there can't be fully funded lifestyle changes that are much more radical than mine, but it is to say that I've given myself a degree of stability by making this shift that's a relatively logical shift. So Sean, this shift actually occurred about a year ago, right? That's right. So, And this shift has actually been accompanied by a lot of great personal changes in my life, right? So June, I leave my job at my big four. August, I get married. Then September, I studied for the Series 65, which I needed to do for my new firm to get the licensure around that. And then starting in October, I was setting up my new firm and setting up my blog and all that good stuff. And I've been fully practicing with the new firm, right? My new firm actually required two sets of regulatory approvals out here in the great state of California uh, on the accountancy side and on the state security side. And so it's been a little bit of a slow shift, right? But with the money I'd saved up and some great support from my wife, Catherine, I've been able to execute this fully funded lifestyle change. So talk to me about how long this was actually in the planning. June 2018, this all goes down, but obviously you've been saving money for many years, regardless of this fully funded lifestyle change. But when did you initially have the thought of, okay, I have this amazing job at a, at a big four firm. I'm doing really well in my career, but I want to make the change. How far in advance did you actually set the plan in motion? I tend to be somewhat cautious in my approach to change. And so this plan started in 2016. I actually did a night program on Friday evenings, Saturday afternoons, two or three times a month where you get uh, training around financial planning, 
So I did that and that gave me, you know, so, sort of a slow shift into this. And then there were things in my personal life, including moving out to California. So I made a very tax inefficient decision to date a woman who lived in California when I lived in Virginia. <laughs> and then an even worse tax decision to move out to California, but it's been great personally and professionally. Um, so Brad, to, to answer your question, and maybe this is by nature, Hey, you know, I've been pursuing accounting in some form since high school. Um, it took me a while. Right. And part of the reason I was able to do that was I had a good job. And part of the reason was that I had money saved up. Sometimes the slow approach is the right approach, or at least for me, it was sometimes you just need to rip off the bandaid. I'm usually not a rip off the bandaid type of guy. So talking about the ripping off the bandaid, there are lots of professionals out there, not just accountants, but many different people who are looking to start their own firm. We've talked about even contractors that are working for somebody else and, and want to start their own business. But there's that kind of crossover point of, wow, how do I go from having this salary to having nothing on the next day or to the point of the crossover if they've been building up side business? And eventually get to the point where it's plausible. Like, did you just rip the bandaid off, go from having this great salary to nothing? Or had you been building up clients on the side? So this goes back to the first part of our conversation, right? So when you work for a big four firm, you essentially agree that that's your job, right? So I couldn't drive Uber or Lyft. I couldn't you know, do tax returns on the side, right? I owed my exclusive professional efforts to my firm, which was great, right? So what I did in the meantime, though, was, like I said, I went back for a certificate to get the financial planning coursework done. I did things in the background. So you're right. It was a rip off the Band-Aid at the moment that I left my job, meaning I didn't have clients lined up because I couldn't professionally do that. But I had a plan and I had the, you know, I had the capital saved up to sustain my lifestyle and to fund the new business. You know what? I'm almost excited that that was your answer because I think what Brad is kind of getting at and what I would like to highlight further is the fact that when you're starting from scratch, you have to create awareness around what you're doing. I mean, you're awesome. You're fantastic. Your knowledge base is incredible, but all of your efforts have been inside of a corporation. And now you don't get that. They're not referring people to you, or at least that's probably not happening on the regular. What does it look like to get your first clients. I mean, there's a few things that are very obvious. You have a fantastic blog. You're coming on the Choose FI podcast and a lot of people from our local groups are already aware of you and probably have already reached out. But beyond that, you know, someone that hasn't taken that route yet, isn't on the show, hasn't, you know, hasn't started their blog yet. Thoughts that you could give that contractor, that individual that is trying to create their personal brand. What did you do? I think it's several things, right? And it's there's no one approach that's going to work in every industry in every case. I think like you mentioned, establishing a blog and having content out there that people can read, I think that's fantastic. Every speaking opportunity you can get, you should take advantage of. Well, how do you get speaking opportunities? A lot of that is relationships, right? So go to conferences you know, look through LinkedIn and, and sources like that. Are there mastermind groups or places where people in your profession are meeting up? Are there places where clients in your profession are meeting up? Local chambers of commerce, things like that. And, and even local things. For, I'll give you one example, right? I advertise in my church bulletin. I'm involved in my church. I'm on our parish finance council. 
it shouldn't be a state secret that I have a financial planning firm. Just throw it in the bulletin and you never know if somebody's going to say, oh yeah, yeah, I, I know that guy and I have some questions. Maybe I should give him a call, right? It's really just about taking action and getting the word out there. Let's go back to like your first client. Can you put yourself in that situation? I mean, you didn't like you, when you left from there, you had to go through this entire process. It was a multi-month process before really you were even able to find that first client. Talk us through that first experience. What did it feel like? Just kind of put us back in time here. Jonathan, as I think about my first clients, I have to say it's nerve wracking in some ways because you don't know if you're going to have all the answers and that's okay, right? So you give the advice or the service that you can give. And if there are things that you're not 100% sure of, all right, acknowledge that and find out the right answer or provide the right service and use it as a learning opportunity. I think when you start out a business, you have this preconception that it's going to be you know, a Michelin five-star restaurant on opening night. And that isn't really how it works. There are going to be some bumps in the road. And on the entrepreneurial track, you have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable, right? You have to say, look, this is not going to be 100% polished when I first offer this product or service, but I'm going to get it there. Yeah, Sean, it's interesting to think about this initial point. Because I can imagine how nerve-wracking that must be to go from a really successful career down to starting over, essentially, even though you have all these skills and degrees, et cetera, but man, you've got to start your own business. What do you see as the future of Mulaney Financial and Tax, right? Like I'm at MulaneyFinancial.com right now. I'm looking at it. It's a beautiful site. Do you have your own thoughts of, I want to grow this to have employees? Is this like a lifestyle business where you just want it to be you? Talk me through what your thoughts are now. And has that vision changed even in the last year or two since you've initially started thinking about this? So Brad, I want my business to be very nimble. One of the, the principles I'm operating with is location independent. Now, ironically enough, I'm going to be here in beautiful Woodland Hills, California for the foreseeable future, but I want a business that I can execute on anywhere. I want to be able to go on vacation you know, in Austin, Texas or San Diego, California, or Portland, Maine, or wherever it is. And if I need to, for an hour, I can advise a client and it's not a problem, right? So I'm trying to have a very nimble business. You know, it's interesting. I've thought about, hey, do I want to add employees? Do I want to add those sorts of things? And right now, that's not a priority for me, right? Right now, it's all about, you know, getting clients in the door, building relationships, those sorts of things. But I want a business that is low expense and very nimble and that I can do whether I live in Woodland Hills, California or Long Island, New York. That's the sort of thing I'm looking to do where I can effectively serve clients regardless of where I'm sitting or standing. Awesome, Sean. Well, we're super excited for you and we just can't wait to watch your your nimble business blow up. And I'm, I'm absolutely positive that it will. Now, what I'd like to do with the second half of this episode is really talk about a pain point that I think that Brad and myself feel and our community feels. And that there's frankly, there's so much we could talk about and so much we will talk about over the next year or two, but where do we start today? What would add the most value? Honestly, it's something that it's really, really hard to find information on. And this is a concept we've mentioned, frankly, for the last two years, how can I fund my children's Roth IRA? And then we'll drop these little one-liners about clever ways to do it, and then we'll move on. So many people talk about it, 
very few people actually do it. And I don't know that that makes sense because I think if we could almost like break it down into replicable parts, people could do this and it would be financial, so financially valuable for both themselves and for their kids. I was hoping maybe you could kind of help us unpack this. What do you think? Absolutely, uh, Jonathan. One quick disclaimer though, right? So there's always a disclaimer. What I'm about to say in the Chooseify podcast are not giving tax, legal, financial, or accounting advice. This is for entertainment purposes only. Consult your own advisor. We do love to entertain. (laughs) 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 All right. Let's go ahead and pull this up. So, all right. The basic idea here is you fund your kid, your kids do some work. They make some income. It goes in your Roth IRA. There's no required minimum distributions on their Roth. So it gets to grow tax-free for an absurdly long amount of time. But practically though, it has to be earned income. So just help us break down a framework for this. Yeah. So what you're looking to do is if you can employ your own children and they're under 18, you have an opportunity to pay them in a way that creates a tax deduction for you presumably on your Schedule C. We'll talk about that in a sec. And so it creates a tax deduction on your end. And because of the standard deduction, it should not create taxable income on your child's end. And because of a certain payroll tax exemption, it should not create payroll tax, so FICA, Medicare, that stuff. And then it creates runway to put money into a Roth IRA for your kids. So let's unpack that just a little bit. Right. So let's say you run a small legal firm. It's you're a lawyer. Maybe you employ one associate and you rent some office space. Well, maybe what you could do is you could employ your child to, on the weekends, maybe on Saturday afternoons, clean up the office space, right? Do some vacuuming and those sorts of things. And you pay them a, a reasonable wage. That comes out of your Schedule C, right? So that's a tax deduction on your end. And then because your child is presumably going to make 6000 or less, the standard deduction should cover them in terms of any income tax liability. So they shouldn't have any federal income tax. Now they've earned, say, let's just say it adds up to $3,000 over the year. They have $3,000 of so-called earned income. You can now put up to that earned income amount. So in my example, $3,000 into a Roth IRA. So you've created a tax deduction for your business on your Schedule C. They don't pay federal income tax. Because of the rules, there's no federal payroll tax, so FICA and those sorts of things. And it's win-win, right? Because your child now has $3,000 growing tax deferred and hopefully tax-free in the future if everything's done right. And you have a $3,000 business deduction. And Sean, as I understand it, the child in that case, they don't have to actually contribute those specific $3,000, right? It's by having the $3,000 of earned income in that tax year, they now are able to contribute up to $3,000 to their Roth IRA. So, I mean, they could have took that $3,000 and spent it on something and then take three grand from their savings. I mean, it doesn't literally have to be those $3,000, right? That's exactly right, Brad. Uh, A lot of opportunities avail themselves. All right, Sean, back to you, man. What else do we need to know about this process? Two things to be thinking about is first, your structure matters, right? So this works well if you have your own business that is essentially a sole proprietorship. 
So generally that means reported on your Schedule C on your tax return. This does not work at all. Well, it, it works to some degree, I should say, but you don't get the payroll tax benefit if the pay is from your S corporation, right? So you just need to be careful about that. Just make sure the pay is from a trader business that you have that's your own sole proprietorship. The other thing to think about is different states have different rules, including on the employment law side. So you may need to get some sort of state approval or certification to employ your child in your own business. As odd as that may sound, different states have different rules on that. So you definitely want to check up on that. And Sean, just talking about earned income, let's just put aside having your own business. Let's say my daughter decides to mow lawns or shovel snow or something like that. And and she legitimately is earning money. But obviously, the person across the street who she's mowing their lawn, they're not giving her a 1099. I mean, they're just handing her 20 bucks. Obviously, we're getting into separate issues potentially, but like, is that earned income or does this have to be like documented, even if she decided to declare that as as income on her tax return, but she didn't get a 1099 from her neighbor because she wasn't earning 600 bucks or more? How, how does that work? Like, is that documented enough? If I were advising you guys, I'd say, first of all, how much did she make? If she made less than $434, I'd say you're below the de minimis threshold you don't really need to file a tax return for that. If it's above that, you should file a tax return with a Schedule C and a Schedule SE. That will create just a little bit of payroll tax, but now you have the runway to do the Roth IRA. Sean, have you ever looked into that with the payroll tax? Would she be paying both sides of it, right? Is this going to be the 15.3% less, whatever the little self-employment tax deduction, like 12 plus percent of payroll tax? Is that worth it to put into the Roth IRA? Like, I mean, I know that's kind of a larger question, but is that something that's ever crossed your mind? Brad, as you mentioned that, you're bringing home a great point is that today's tax rate matters and tomorrow's tax rate matters. So you're exactly right. It's the 15.3%, which essentially gets boiled down to 14.13% in her case, if she's filing a Schedule C. That's not a high rate of tax, right? In the future, your daughter hopefully is going to be at some point because she's doing so well and she's been so well trained by you and Laura, she's going to be subject to a very high rate of tax. So it very well might be still worth it. Um, Roths are just a tremendous planning tool. So that 14.13% might be well worth paying today. And think about the alternative, right? The alternative is to not do the Roth IRA and have that money sitting ready, you know, to be taxed in the future on its interest dividends, capital gain distributions, and potentially its gain in the future. So you so you mentioned the payroll tax there, especially if your child is essentially starting their own business. But I felt like I, I heard you say almost in passing that if the child is an employee and the parent's sole prop, that is potentially more tax advantage. And I'd love to circle back to that, but also to highlight that that is in keeping with something that we talk about on the show all the time, like the side hustle, right? The idea that there are so many different things that you can do. And if you can find something that lights you up and creates a small amount of income for yourself and helps you build your talent stack in the process, it's fulfilling for you as an individual, as a parent potentially, but even more so, it gives you an opportunity in a very cool way to do something with your child as well. And I'm curious your thoughts on that. Did I miss that? Or is that, is that the case? It would be potentially more advantage to have your child work in your side hustle. That's right, Jonathan, that this payroll tax exemption 
only applies if your child is employed by you in your business, right? So it doesn't apply if the neighbor employs your child, for example. And in terms of documentation, you should obtain from your child a form W-4 that will claim she's exempt or he's exempt, right? And then at the end of the year, you issue to your child and to the good folks at the IRS a form W-2 reporting all that income, thousand bucks, two thousand bucks, whatever it is. The income is now reported to both the IRS and to the child. And then when the child files his or her tax return, you attach that W-2 to the first page of the tax return. And now you sort of completed the, the loop in terms of the federal reporting to make sure that you've been able to sustain all that. So if the IRS ever comes knocking and says, hey, why does your child have you know, $3,000 in a Roth IRA? They're you know, seven years old. You could say, well, they cleaned out all the offices and they made this reasonable salary and there you go. Okay. So you guys are two accountants. You're both nodding, you know, on the other side of the, the phone, Brad's like, yep, yep, yep. That makes sense. But to our audience that maybe hears these terms, W2 and W4 yep, and aren't yep. intimately familiar with how to create one, like is all of this predicated on you having the world's most awesome CPA? Is there any like no. obvious place to start for a parent and a child that are just wanting to figure out how do I actually fill out or where do I go to do a W2 or a W4? Yeah. And I think this is, uh, Jonathan, this is two things, right? If you have other employees, this goes in your, your actual payroll. If you have other employees, whatever you're doing for them, you do for this child. If you don't, if he or she is your only employee, you, you go to the internet and you pull up the forms and instructions, and they're not all that complicated. So you, most people ought to be able to do them themselves. But in some instances, you might need some professional assistance. Yeah, Sean, it probably is as simple as just W-4 IRS form. And the W-4 will show up. And as I understand it, the W-4 does not get filed. That's something you keep on file for your records if there's ever a need. But that gives you the employee in this case. Obviously, it's your child. So you know this information. But it gives you the employee's social security number and the number of allowances they want for withholding, et cetera. So that's just background information. But then the W-2 is actually, as you said a couple of minutes ago, that's the form that is actually getting filed with the IRS. So, I mean, file doesn't have to be anything complicated, right? Like you can just mail it in. There are mailing instructions on there and you have to give another copy to the employee. In this case, it's your child, right? So it's not that hard to send it to them. But I mean, is that is that a fairly accurate summation of this? Yeah, that's fairly accurate. That That's about how it works. John, I hope our audience appreciates like how technical this is if you don't know what you don't know. And you're saying, oh, Roth IRA for my kids. And what the, the foundation that we've hopefully been able to cultivate for that conversation, I think people can do this and they probably should. It's worth researching. I was like in the back of my mind, like trying to quickly run a calculation of if you had a Roth IRA funded for your kids and they're making a couple grand a year via this vehicle and they're doing it for about five or 10 years, you know, well before the age of 18, like what that would be for them by the age of 30, 40, 50, 60 and beyond, like it's insane. And then when you pair that with the fact that it's all uh, tax-free growth and you can pull out the contributions, I mean, this one tactic, if employed in a child's early years is the most powerful vehicle imagined and we don't talk about it and we don't do it because we're afraid to ask the hard questions this was an important conversation and I appreciate you taking the time to slow down with us on this. Of course. Happy to do so, Jonathan.
Now to our audience, you know, there was really, we had big goals for this episode. One was to introduce Sean, who is a regular part of our show going forward. There are so many questions that we have for him. Like, how does this new tax law, how does it change the whole equation on controlling your tax rate and how those are tied to tax reform? What to do with your old 401k and backdoor Ross and step doctrine? I mean, these are questions that I see floated all around the internet. We have a really rare opportunity to bring in an expert in this area and slow down on these and really come to some fantastic information from a trusted resource. But I think with the second half of this episode, Sean, if I could pick your brain on one more question, I was curious your thoughts on donating to charity in the most optimized way possible. So this is something, you know, giving is a big part of people's journey. This is just something that they do, whether it be, you know, in your church through a tithe or a philanthropy or an organization or nonprofit that you believe in, whatever that is, people are doing it and potentially they're not doing it in the most optimal way fashion. If you know the rules, there are ways to make sure that every dollar you donate goes farther. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, Jonathan, I think the landscape's changed on charitable giving. So it used to be that something like 30% of Americans itemized deductions, meaning they gave to charities and each deduction showed up on their tax return. Then tax reform happened and the standard deduction significantly increased. It's now over $12,000 for individuals, over $24,000 for married filing joint tax returns. And so what happens is, let's say you only gave, I say only, but let's say you gave $10,000 last year. Well, if you don't have other deductions to get you above the relevant threshold, $12,000 or $24,000 in change, depending on if you're married or not, you may not be able to deduct those contributions. So there are now strategies where you say, well, okay, I'm going to take two or more years worth of charitable contributions and I'm going to put them all in one tax year. So in one tax year, I'll itemize at a higher amount of deductions. And then for the next two, three, four years, I'll take the standard deduction. And so what does that look like? One of the big ones is the donor advised fund. And I know, Brad, you did this a year or two back. This is really powerful post-tax reform. So I'll give you an example, right? Let's say you go to church every week and you put money into the collection basket every week. Well, why don't you do this instead? Why don't you set up a donor advised fund, move some assets into the donor advised fund this year, and then have the donor advised fund for the next two, three, four years, write a check to your church every week or every month. What that does is it takes two, three, four years worth of donations to your church and moves them onto this year's tax return, right? So you, you know, assuming you get above the 12,000 or 24,000 number, then you get to deduct all of that this year. And then in the future, your donor advised fund makes the donations and you'll just take the standard deduction and you'll optimize from a tax perspective that way by accelerating the deduction for the contributions you're going to make anyway. I think donor advised funds, the big one. The other one is if you have appreciated stock securities, those sorts of things, a great thing to donate them to is a charity or a donor advised fund because you get a deduction, generally speaking, for the fair market value of those securities and you get to avoid the capital gain tax on those securities. So Sean, let's slow down on that and really dive into what you mean precisely. So you can donate your stock. You're obviously not selling it. You're just taking the stock that you own and you're donating that. Let's say you bought it for a dollar a share, right? And you have a thousand shares. Now it's worth 10 times that, right? It's worth 
10,000 bucks overall, you would normally have a built-in potential capital gain when you sold it, in this case of $9,000. And that would be obviously taxable income. But in this case, because you're donating it at this appreciated level, you are never paying that tax. There's never that capital gain. And you've made a donation of 10 grand. Is that roughly accurate? That's exactly right, Brad. So it, you achieve two different things, right? Yeah, Brad, avoid... you were only going for rough and you got exact. <laughs> ah, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> right. So you've done two different really good things, right? You avoid avoided the gain, which would have been on your federal and potentially state income tax return, right? Depending on when you, where you live. And you now have $10,000 that can potentially be deductible as a charitable contribution. So that's very powerful planning. And Brad, I loved how you slowed down on that. I wanted to slow down on the actually using the donor advised fund. Like I get Sean, you're going to start with it depends, but what is this strategy or tactic worth? It's worth depends on just how close you are to the standard deduction without doing it. So let's say you add up your mortgage interest, your state taxes, and you're a married couple, you have about $23,000 worth of deductions. If you could do a donor advised fund for say $10,000, and that will take two or three years worth of deductions. Now you're going to have an itemized deduction this year of 33,000. And then next year you'll have 24,000 and change. And then presumably the next year, 24,000 and change in standard deductions. But let's say you had no other deductions this year. I would tell you, don't do the donor advised fund because if you put $10,000 in there, well, you're still going to take the standard deduction of 24,000. So it really depends on your other deductions and just how close you are to itemizing or not itemizing this year. Yeah, this is a really, really important one. A lot of people, obviously, Sean, you live and breathe this, but a lot of people don't even understand what this standard deduction is. Essentially, you take your gross income on your tax return and then the government is giving you if you are married filing joint, $24,000 of just deductions right off the top. So you can itemize, which is if you have certain deductions, like you said, charitable, mortgage interest, state taxes, things like that. And when you add them all together, if that exceeds the 24,000, then you get to take that higher number. But to your point, even if that higher number is only 25 or 26,000, and built in there is $10,000 worth of charitable contributions. Well, you're not getting the deduction for that full 10,000 because you would have had a $24,000 standard deduction. And in this case, you're only getting $26,000, right? So you're only getting a $2,000 additional deduction. You're only getting that, that fraction, right? 20% in that case. So that's, right. that's why it's crucially important to know where you are on this threshold of standard versus itemized. That's right, Brad. You know, this topic of tax deductions, you think, well, all right, I have a deduction that just reduces my income. It's nowhere near that simple. I actually did a blog post on this very topic, right? All the different kinds of tax deductions. I try to lay it out in a way that breaks it down. And this is one of those key ones is, right, that some deductions are quote unquote itemized deductions, but you only take them if they exceed your so-called standard deduction, which this year is 12,200 for singles and 24,400 if you're married filing joint. You know how like you ask one good question and then like you just want to ask a 40 more, like if I could have a five hour interview, if my wife would let me record for that long, I promise you, Sean, I would keep here every second. You'd be trying to get away. But 
Unfortunately, I think we're running out of time to continue down this epic rabbit hole today, but we are not done with the episode. Let's go ahead and tackle the hot seat. Are you ready for this? Absolutely, Jonathan. In a world drowning in debt and rampant consumption, trapped by the chains of lifestyle inflation, these questions highlight the secrets of those who have broken free. Welcome to the Choose FI Hot Seat. All right, Sean, question number one, your favorite blog that's not your own. Uh, so I'd say J.L. Collins, The Stock Series, because it led to the great personal finance book, The Simple Path to Wealth. I think a lot of us would be well advised to heed much of the advice J.L. Collins offers. I don't agree with everything he writes, but boy, you're on a, you have a good start if you're starting with his book. Isn't that the case, man? Everybody wants to complicate it so much and then do nothing. And you have this simple path here and it just, it just works. So I love that recommendation. Question number two, your favorite article of all time. Now this can be one that you wrote or someone else's. So this is actually going to be one I wrote, and this is just one that makes FI fun. So I wrote a blog post called Cosmo Kramer and Financial Independence, and it was an absolute blast to write. I go through Cosmo Kramer on the TV show Seinfeld and his many different plot lines and side hustles and ventures and discuss how he's sort of the closest thing we have on TV to a character that embodies financial independence. And it's just, <laughs> it's not a serious post, but it's, it was a lot of fun to write. And I think it's a lot of fun to read. I have a side hustle. It's a clone. I smell like the beach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Kramer was an arbitrager too. He did the Michigan bottle deposit scam to run cans and bottles up to Michigan to get 10 cents a bottle instead of five. <laughs> Crimerica industries live on. <laughs> All right. Question number three, your favorite life hack. So my favorite life hack has phi and spiritual uh, components to it. So these days, every other Friday, I fast. So I define that as I skip both breakfast and lunch, and my only meal on every other Friday is dinner. And right, I fast for multiple reasons, especially as part of my faith. It's a mortification to make up for my sins, which of course are many and all of our sins, but also it saves you money and it's good for you, right? It's a form of intermittent fasting. So it's very healthy for you. And if you cut out two meals every two weeks, you're essentially cutting out one meal a week and you're saving some money. So it has spiritual benefits and financial benefits and health benefits. I love it when you can stack multiple benefits together. It's fantastic. <laughs> nice. All right, Sean, question number four, your biggest financial mistake. So my biggest financial mistake is chasing yield. So a while ago, you know, before I really got on on the path I'm on now, I thought, well, I'll save a bunch of money and I'll chase yield, right? I'll build up a pool of assets that will generate, you know, high yield, high dividend, those sorts of things. And really that's not what it's about. It's about total return. And so that was a mistake I made in earlier days in my financial past is chasing yield as opposed to chasing, well not chasing, but pursuing total return. Oh, this brings back recent scars. <laughs> I'm done fighting that fight. Moving on. <laughs> All right. Question number five, the advice you would give your younger self. 
So the advice I'd give my younger self is stay close to the Catholic Church. I think when I was younger, I thought being a Catholic meant going to church on Sunday. And it's so much more than that. It's so much richer. And that would be the big piece of advice I'd give to my younger self is prioritize your faith and your God. All right. Now we do have a bonus question for you. What purchase have you made over the past 12 months that has brought the most value to your life? The purchase that has benefited me the most in the last 12 months is one for my business. I purchased an HP LaserJet printer and scanner. Two things I love about it. One, it's a great scanner. And two, it's LaserJet black and white. So it does not do color. The really cool thing about that is I don't have to be bothered replacing the yellow or the blue or the red cartridge. The only cartridge I ever need to worry about is the black toner. Yes, it's such a minimalist approach to paper reproduction. Oh, come on. That was like worth a courtesy laugh. Sean, you're killing me. (laughs) Sean, thank you so much for coming on the show, being so generous with your time and frankly, being a part of our community. I mean, we've already featured you on our show multiple times. Really what we wanted to do is do a full episode to tell a little bit about your backstory and give some more insight into this optimization strategy. I mean, frankly, we would love to have you on in the future to tackle some of the other questions. So just, uh, would you be up for that? Absolutely, Jonathan. Anytime, it's a pleasure to join you and Brad and talk tax or talk New York Jets. <laughs> well, okay, Brad, I'll keep talking. Uh, <laughs> someone's listening to this. They want to connect with you, connect with you directly, find out more about your content. What is the best way for them to do that? A few ways, right? You can follow me on Twitter, Sean Money and Tax. You can go to my firm website, MulaneyFinancial.com, or you can go to my blog, FITaxGuy.com. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Brad, this show has gotten to the point where it's getting very close to a million downloads a month at this point in time. People have decided that checking in once or twice a week to listen to an episode is worth their time and worth sharing with a friend. And I think both of us intellectually know that it's not like the Brad and Jonathan show. Like we long since passed our comfort zone of like our initial base of knowledge. The reason that the show has legs and continues to reach new audiences is because People like Sean are willing to come on the show and share their breadth of knowledge in the most generous way imaginable. Yeah, I agree completely. It's wonderful to have just true subject matter experts and have them come on and just be so willing to share their information. It's so cool that we have Sean as this this resource, Jonathan, for years to come. So if we have tax questions, the audience, if you're listening to this and you have tax questions, send them in to us. Post on the Facebook group, send an email to feedback at choosefi.com. We'll get Sean to come back on for the real high level ones and, and answer them. And that is just so cool to me. If you got value from today's episode, if you've been getting value from the episodes up to this point, just take one second and press the subscribe button on the platform you're listening to this on. Just lets the providers know you're getting value from the show and you want to be here when we produce additional content. If you want to support us and what we're doing here at Choose FI, here are four easy ways. One, leave us an iTunes review. To do that, just go to choosefi.com slash iTunes. Two, use our page to sign up for travel credit cards. If you want to travel the world with miles and points instead of your hard-earned dollars, then just go to chooseify.com slash cards and get started today. Three, if you're working on the milestones of FI, set up a personal capital account to track your progress and use our affiliate link. It's completely free and just go to chooseify.com slash PC. P is in Paul, C is in Cap. And four, and most importantly, find your friends, coworkers, and family members who might be open to this message and tell them about the podcast. Have them start with episode 100. It is a fantastic starting place. All right, my friends, the fire is spreading. We'll see you next time as we continue to go down the road less traveled. 
You've been listening to Choose FI Radio Podcast, where we help middle-class America build wealth one life hack at a time.